Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is now part two of my conversation with Rich Hamill. We will continue looking at air quality modeling, how it's changing moving forward, and the things that you need to consider. If you didn't hear the first part, go back and listen to the previous episode. And with that, Rich, let's get right into it. So, Rich, we're going to move on a little bit more of a hard modeling question, I would say. The availability of models and different types of models, generally speaking, how can we expect those to evolve in the future? And then not to distract from that bigger picture question, but I do want to make sure we cover that at one point in time, there was a, I will say, a photochemical modeling push in that photochemical modeling might become much more common for facilities to have to address during capital projects, that hasn't necessarily occurred. So I'm curious if you could just speak to what happened there and what might happen in the context of the overall evolution of available models. Yeah. So first on photochemical modeling, um, if you'd attended an EPA modeling conference over the last few years since the Appendix W revision of 2017 is really what brought photochemical modeling really into the forefront. You would have expected from the presentations and such done at those conferences that you'd be doing photochemical modeling all the time. And photochemical modeling, of course, is very time consuming. It's more expensive. It can be pretty onerous to a project to have to do it. In practice, we haven't seen that happen at all, and it's largely because of EPA's screening methodology, the MERPs or model emission rates for precursors, which allows you to use previously done photochemical modeling or or even hypothetical modeling that they did to compare your emissions to that previous modeling in order to do an assessment of what impact on the ozone background you might have. The other part of it is having talked to some EPA modelers, they've found over time that in order to really move the needle on ambient ozone, you have to have very, very high NOx or VOC emissions. And so for smaller projects, even those that are ahead of the MERPs or have impacts that are greater than the MERPs, they generally find other pathways for you to uh, comply with the requirements of Appendix W than actually do photochemical modeling. The last problem there is that there aren't really that many people who are capable of reviewing photochemical modeling. So I think that might be another reason why EPA um, hasn't necessarily required it nearly as much as, as expected. Rich, how about other models? Can we expect to see different models than we've seen in the past? Or are we running with AirMod and CalPuff and all the things that we're used to? Or is there something new that's going to come out where environmental teams might need to think about new capabilities within their teams. Yeah, I think we're going to see another generation of models start to come about in the next, say, decade or so. You know, AirMod is a steady state model. It doesn't remember what happened last hour or what's going to happen next hour. And so it has limitations in that way. I think we're going to see um, kind of a, a trend towards a model like SkiChem, which, you know, does atmospheric chemistry and tracks where the, uh, 
where the plume has gone from hour to hour and is also capable of evaluating impacts not only in the near field, but also on a regional scale. So, you know, a more one size fits all model that that can do all of those things. And a, a lot of that is driven, of course, by the just, again, increased capabilities of computers so that these model runs don't take days and days. I think other things that we're going to see are, um, you know, some other models that are interesting that are also kind of coming to the forefront, like high split, which does backwards trajectory modeling to kind of identify, okay, you've got this impact here. You know, where did it come from? Where upstream did it come from? And things like that. But in general, I, I think we're going to see a move away from the steady steady state Gaussian models and more into these uh, Lagrangian uh, puff model type things. Got it. Okay. So I'm managing an environmental program at a facility. I don't necessarily have an upcoming air toxics demonstration to do that I'm aware of. Maybe big capital projects are still a year or more out and still being defined. Are there still things that I should proactively be doing to prepare for future modeling implications? Yeah, well, you want to be aware of what your state is proposing or what EPA is proposing that might impact you down the road. And a lot of what can be done in terms of preparation and a lot of the challenge sometimes in developing a a modeling study is having a good emissions inventory and an understanding of what you're emitting. So especially on pollutants that might be, um, you know, on the radar down the road, that you might need to do a demonstration against getting a a PM 2.5 inventory together because that may come up an NO2 inventory together because maybe you've never modeled that before Um, ethylene oxide or whatever the hot toxic of the day happens to be getting those emissions inventories together and understanding what you emit. So then when it gets to the point where there's a rule you have to comply with or a modeling study you need to do for a permitting action, you have that information ready to go. And emissions inventory being probably potential peak hourly emissions and actual emissions. So you think about it from the standpoint of modeling and the different averaging periods of the standard. But that's always good advice. Understand the emissions that you've got now, even if we don't have a project coming up, because we're going to need those things tightened up. How's your experience been, Rich, with the stage at which modelers get involved in capital projects. I'm speaking in general terms, of course, but it feels to me like even in 2005, let's say, before the one-hour NO2 and SO2 standards came out and PM 2.5 got tighter, that maybe modelers at the agency and within the environmental teams could get involved later because the standards weren't as stringent, but Mm -hmm. now they're some of the first people that you have to involve. What's been your experience with that and how that's played out over time? Yeah, well, I mean, as we know, the air permitting and air modeling is a critical path on on all capital projects. And with the more stringent standards and just more and more regulations and rules, I think having an understanding of how you're going to do that modeling and how you're going to get buy-in from the state on how you're going to do that modeling. It just gets more and more important to the timeline of the, of the project. So, uh, you know, I'm always one who I want to talk to the agency as soon as the client we're working with will allow us to set up a meeting, talk through our modeling approach, talk through what their requirements are, make sure we understand what they want us to do 
is and kind of come to an agreement, hopefully by the end of that call on here's what the approach is going to be so we can take it back, start working on it, um, streamline the process by which we're going to do the modeling protocol. Hopefully it just is regurgitating what we talked to them about on the phone so they can quickly approve it and, and just keep things moving forward. And then the second part of that is, um, you know, it's, it's critical, I think, especially on complex modeling projects to talk to the modeler, find out who the modeler is that's going to be reviewing it from the agency and just be in constant contact when they're reviewing, you know, blow by ideas. If we have to make changes in the modeling, you know, let them know beforehand. So try to reduce the number of surprises just to kind of keep the whole review process moving forward. If you can't name the air quality modeling person or people at your state agency, you should be able to. Those are important folks. Mm-hmm. Rich, sometimes modeling demonstrations for capital projects require the collection of background ambient data and the collection of site-specific meteorological data. I say sometimes, I would say infrequently, but is there any advice you could give around potential proactivity around those items that you've seen, you you have any practical experience where you've seen that be helpful? Yeah, well, it depends on the state you're you're modeling in, but a lot of the states do have their inventories together already, or or you have to request them to put them together. You can make a pretty good guess in the initial phases of your project as to which pollutants are going to require cumulative modeling that would include facilities that are, you know, in the area. So. I always recommend making uh, that request to your state as early as possible, even before you know how far out you really have to look just to get that in process and always ask, you know, for a, an impact area that's greater than what you're anticipating so that rather than having to ask again for, oh, we need an additional five kilometers out, um, you can you can tone it back in terms of what you include, but at least you have the information you know, in your hands right away. So you can start doing any refinements that you might have to do because a lot of the state inventories, you know, they don't get updated in real time. So they might have old facilities that have actually retired now. Uh, Sometimes their coordinate systems are not necessarily consistent. So you might find that a big important source you're going to have to model uh, in the inventory is not quite in the right spot. So you have to do some adjustments. So you know, getting ahead of that and getting that information in your hands before it really becomes critical path can really save a lot of time. Rich, I don't think this happens often, but have you ever seen an important project get delayed because meteorological data had to be gathered at the facility for a year and and they couldn't use widely available data? Have you ever seen a situation like that? And is there anything that folks should consider around that? Well, I think that used to be more prevalent back in the old days, if you will. Um, And, you know, still to this day, right, you see a lot of the old coal-fired power plants have their MET towers on Mm -hmm. property, whether they're still operating or not is a different question maybe. But I haven't specifically seen a project held up by by meteorological data. These days, again, this is another uh, Appendix W revision item, we have the ability to process prognostic meteorological data from the models like the WARF model uh, or the, you know, the meteorological models that can be used to create a representative meteorological data package um, rather than using airports data if you can't find one that's representative of the site. Got it. 
All right, everybody. I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope that this was a helpful couple of sessions about modeling and where it's headed. I'd expect more episodes around modeling in 2021 as the new administration gets in and has a chance to start taking a look at things. We talked about the ambient standards. We'll be keeping a close eye on those and we'll be talking about environmental justice and how modeling comes into play there at a local level. So I think a lot of these topics tie together and I'd expect to hear a lot more about these in 2021. Thanks everybody for listening. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.